So this morning we're talking about something that I um, I really love. It's a beautiful story uh, from the book of John. Uh, that's the series we've been in and will continue to be in. This is coming from chapter four. But before we get into that, I want to tell you kind of my sob story. Are you ready to feel really sorry for 16-year-old me? Yeah. When I was 16, I went on a youth trip. We were going to go backpacking in the Colorado foothills and whitewater rafting. So I am what you would say or call uh, casually outdoorsy. Uh, I like to buy brands that make it look like I'm outdoorsy. I have a lot of North Face. Uh, I like to go camping. My favorite kind of camping, camping happens when you're still kind of inside. Um, I grew up on eight acres, so we spent a lot of outside time in that capacity. We had horses. Um, but if there's not a toilet, please don't sign me up. So signing up to go backpacking through the rocky foothills along with whitewater rafting, not my jam. But I'd been going to youth group for a few months. I'd made some friends and they talked me into going. I was so dedicated that I sold bags of fertilizer. (laughs) I literally sold poop in order to fund my trip. The trip itself, though being outside of my comfort zone, I felt was something important. I didn't grow up going to church. My grandma took us for a couple of years to like a really, really small Episcopalian church, and we loved it. There were very few kids, but very amazing elderly people, and we felt so loved. But once you hit like sixth grade, that just doesn't hold maybe the same appeal as it did when I was younger. Um, I wanted to be around all the cute boys. Uh, so that's actually how my friends got me going to youth group is, uh, the Tushi football team attended this church. So I was heading to the Rockies, heading with the Tushi football team and life was good. There was a graduated senior on our trip and she was serving as kind of a student leader and she and I started getting to know one another. It was a two day drive. I rode in her car And she and I developed a quick friendship. Uh, Unfortunately for 16-year-old me, she was dating the guy that my good friends in the youth group all thought was very cute, and one in particular very, very, very cute. Uh, And so now I was on enemy territory being friends with a girl that my friend liked, as can be high school life sometimes. So my friends, uh, they decided that they didn't want to talk to me anymore. If I didn't choose to stop talking to this very cool graduated senior, who for the record was also our star varsity soccer captain, which just upped like my street cred in the high school realm a little bit more for some odd reason. I wasn't ready to break my association with my near fame experience. So we spent two days traveling, we got to base camp, and we were setting up to go backpacking. And our guides were two college kids who my new, recently graduated friend thought were very cool. The feeling was mutual, and I had one set of friends not speaking to me, and now my newfound fame was being snatched out from underneath me because she really connected with our guides. I felt extremely alone. 
I had gone so far out of our comfort zone in little Washington in the midst of a really difficult time for my family. My grandma, while I was absent, was having open heart surgery. And my friends that I thought were good friends were no longer speaking to me. I, again, not being outdoorsy, was now outside of my comfort zone without the friends who convinced me to go, and there was hail. The days were so long. We (laughs) threw snow, like hiked up these hills. We camped at night. It was hailing, and my friends had kind of grouped their sleeping bags together, and I was on the outside soaking wet. I was 16 in the Rockies, soaking wet, crying myself to sleep as my friends who could hear me cry were making fun of me. Things had gone from bad to worse in a profound way, and 16-year-old me did not know what I was doing or why I was there. So our text again comes from John chapter 4, and we're going to be taking a look at how Jesus pursues our hearts. So this morning we're going to look at Jesus pursuing recklessly. I love that word. Without concern, abandoned to his cause. Jesus says uh, that our hearts are this beautiful treasure, and then he puts what he says to action in the way he initiates our relationship with him. John 4 goes like this. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? So our text says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. But that's not actually true. So we have a map that we're going to put up there for you. And you can see Jesus was in was heading from Jerusalem. And Samaria is obviously the shortcut between the two. Most Jews circumvented Samaria and added three days to their journey because they refused to go through this country. Not only did they not associate or not speak to, they did whatever it took to avoid even being in the vicinity of Samaritans. They crossed the Jordan River twice, an extremely dangerous trek, just so they didn't have to be in the same space as an entire group of people. So though it says that he had to, that isn't the entire story. And I think that's really beautiful because we don't know why Jesus had to go through Samaria. It could have been that he was in a hurry. I like to think that he was compelled, that he had to go associate with people who were not like him because it was an outflow of who he is. That in order to be fully 
who God created him to be, he associated with people that was not culturally acceptable. There was a lot of bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it went back centuries. There was some uh, absolute racism there because the Samaritans had intermarried with people of other nations, which was an affront to the Jews who were commanded to marry only within their own people group and their own religion. More than that, though, Samaritan, though we would assume it, it means someone from Samaria, actually means keeper. The Samaritans considered themselves the keepers of the true revelation of God. While the Jews had the Torah, the law, and the prophets, the Samaritans only listened to the first five books, the Pentateuch, of what we now call the Old Testament. There was argument over who was the true keeper of God's revelation. There was a fight over where it was okay and not okay to worship God. The Jews claimed the only true place to worship God was Jerusalem and thus would trek there every year, while the Samaritans said, no, we worship on Mount Gerizim. That is where God meets us. There was a pride issue. And to be called a Samaritan as a Jew was one of the dirtiest insults somebody could throw your way. If I'm honest with myself... I can see myself in one or both of these people groups. Over the years, I've struggled with, well, I go to this church. What church do you go to? Instead of seeing a greater view of how God is moving all through our world. And I know that we can get hung up on little details. And we can consider ourselves the true keepers. And we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about that in just a little bit. But beyond going through Samaria, the fact that Jesus was associating with a woman was an even bigger uh, misunderstanding, a bigger bigger area of confusion. Jesus, as as a teacher, as a Jewish teacher, would not have spoken to women in public, just in general. But to speak to a Samaritan woman was about as bad as you could get. So much so that when Jesus asks her for a drink, He's risking becoming ceremonially unclean, which means he couldn't worship in the temples. Because the Jews believed if you drank or touched from something that a Samaritan had drank or touched, you were defiled. That's a really, really strong way of looking at a jar of water. So when he asks her for a drink and the woman was surprised, I'm calling that maybe the understatement of the century. I'm sure she was scared, confused as to why this man who alone in the middle of the day where nobody else was around was initiating contact with her. Yet here he was, not only with his reputation in question, but because of the, of the rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritan, his safety was also up for, up for grabs. There were many attacks on Jews in Samaria. It's an interesting setup for what Jesus likes to do. Surprise us, like he surprised the woman. 
Jesus additionally pursues relationally. I love that. We hear this word a lot recently. Relational, I'm relational, we're relational, we do things relationally. What it means is we just like people. We build connections. We see people for who they are. Jesus pursues through relationships. I love that he's the one who initiated contact. He's the one who chose a place of humility. And he started talking to this woman like a person with dignity because she mattered to him. Verse 10 says, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Now there's a little debate on this, but a lot of biblical scholars think she was being kind of flippant, a little sarcastic. Oh, you're going to give me water? That's cute. Where's your rope? I'm just saying you don't have a bucket. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? There's some hesitation in her response. There's some skepticism. And I understand that. If somebody started speaking to me in a context that was completely out of my norm, And if somebody said, I have something that you can't even imagine, you're like, I'm not really interested in pyramid schemes here. I don't really want to get involved on the base level of this thing. But Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. I mean, if we just think about the practicality of a very deep well, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. And she was here by herself at noon, the hottest part of the day, which might mean nothing, or it might mean that she came when she didn't have to run into other people. It might mean that she consistently sought a time of isolation which was the least desired time of the day. So to be told, you don't have to do this anymore, her defenses are starting to come down a little bit, which I think is extremely beautiful. And then Jesus says, go and get your husband. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, I don't know about you uh, or what your, your background or context is. I have heard this story a couple of different ways, but the primary theme I've heard is that she was a woman of immoral character, that she had five different husbands, she's living with someone right now. But as I researched and as I read and as I prayed, there are some different theories that we can put forward. And I don't know the answer. None of us do. But potentially, she's been a widow five times over. Potentially, she has been left by five different men. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 2 says, Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. 
Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes her a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. When she leaves his house, she's free to marry another man. Deuteronomy is in the Pentateuch, and the Pentateuch is one of five of the books that the Samaritans had. So in their culture, it would be as simple as saying, you've not pleased me, get out. Five different relationships, regardless of the scenario, leaves a scar. Ending relationships is painful. Broken relationships change us. Women weren't property owners. They weren't permitted to own land. And so in order to maintain stability for her life, she needed to be attached to either a father or a husband. If she was, by some odd turn of events, wealthy, she would not be the one at the well. Her servant would be fetching water for her. So as we read this text and as we continue to understand the greater story that God has for each and every one of us, let's think about this woman as a woman in pain, regardless of how she got there. So to be pursued relationally by Jesus, it's all the more sweet when our hearts are hurt. It's all the more powerful when we haven't been pursued with the best of intentions. To me, it makes sense that she was skeptical. By her own choice or the choice of others, she's broken. I love that Jesus approaches her. I love that Jesus pursues her. He connects with her out of a deep love and understanding of how God sees her. And he does that for each and every one of us, even when we can't see how God sees us. Lastly, Jesus pursues relentlessly. Up to this point, the woman had her guard up. As she pressed back on Jesus' assertion that he had something good to give, that he had something better than what she had, there's a melting that happens. I am a person who, when you hurt me, I go to anger, and I hate that about myself. But I see a little bit of myself in this woman and in her anger and in her sarcastic remarks. Because promises had probably been made to her. And now here was Jesus making a promise. But sometimes that promise seems so good that we're willing to tear down a little bit of those walls. And we're willing to give the benefit of the doubt. And that's what, that's what I see happening here. She was wary, but as he laid out a gift for her, her curiosity got the better of her. It was also extremely uncommon, though it was prohibited for Jewish men to speak to women, Jewish teachers. Uh, it was also very uncommon for women to approach men, just culturally, regardless of the status of the man. And so for her to continue to press back, that shows a desire and hunger for something deeper. Verse 19 says, Sir, the woman said, You must be a prophet. So tell me, oh, I love that. So tell me, 
I have another question for you before we keep going on this. I have another question. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Oh, man. Again, I can see myself in this woman because sometimes when things are challenging, eh, we're just going to wait and see what happens in the future. I'm not ready to confront years and years and years of conflict. I'm not ready to lay down that thing that I've held up as my Mount Gerizim. And yet Jesus looked at her for the very first time in the book of John and said, I am the Messiah. The very first person he fully reveals himself to is a Samaritan woman. I am the Messiah. Oh, man. I think about, I imagine that moment for her. Jesus takes this opportunity and he addresses the long-standing conflict between his people and hers. He's acting as an ambassador for the Jewish faith. Do you notice that though he says the Jews know all about this God, he doesn't say, but you don't worship him. What he says is, we know about the one you worship. He doesn't discount her worship because he doesn't, she doesn't have all of the information. He acknowledges and validates what that looks like in her life. This statement must have been too good to be true for her on so many levels. For centuries, neighboring countries at war over religiosity, and this might be the end of that. So I don't know about you, but the people I tend to fight the hardest with are the people I love the most. Anybody else? Yeah. As a kid, that meant my older sister and my younger sister. Ooh, I am the middle of three girls. My parents are saints. And uh, we had an amazing relationship as sisters. But when we fought, did not want to be around. And I fought dirty. Like, I fought with not, I wasn't like a words kind of kid. Once my older sister would not play with me, and I really, really, really wanted to play with her Barbies, and I knew that if she did not play with me, I could not play with her Barbies, so I, I slammed her up against the ladder of our bunk beds, and I bit her in the back. We had some wars in my home, and yet, they are the people I want in my life. I got to see my older sister yesterday. She was in town. It was wonderful. It was short, but it was sweet. And I want my family around me more than anybody else. I see the way my kids love one another. 
One minute they're fighting and we're taking bets as parents on who's going to win or who's going to cry. And then five minutes later they are affirming the love and the care and the character of the, of the other. It's so precious. The Jews and the Samaritans were siblings, guys. They were all descended from the same 12 tribes of Israel. And if any of us have ever been distant or estranged from a family member, that's a rift and a pain unlike any other, right? What Jesus was promising was a mend to the rift. That in the name of the Father, in spirit and truth, we can worship together. Because Jesus wasn't okay that there were prohibitions. And I love that so much, that in eradicating a single place of worship, he was saying, because I want you all with me. Because it's more important that we're together than where we are together at. When we share Jesus in common, there is no rift that the Holy Spirit doesn't desire to mend. There is no Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim that the Holy Spirit doesn't want to bring together. We welcome people in who are different than us because in the kingdom of God, we can be true worshipers together. And younger me didn't understand that because I really loved the church I was at, so I wasn't sure if your church was as cool. But the older I get, the more I look at the beauty that Jesus creates when he creates unity as worshipers in spirit and in truth, not in location or in denomination. And I'm not saying denominations are bad. I'm just saying we can supersede our sense of belonging to one place and understand a deeper and richer sense of belonging as one people. That's what Jesus was saying when he said there will come a time. In fact, it is here now. Jesus came to grant access to God. His work eradicated the boundaries and the sanctions that we place and are placed on us to and from people who are not like us. And though I absolutely acknowledge those barriers still exist in our world and in times, our churches, Jesus' heart for unity and mutual care within his people is clear. No bias should keep us from worshiping together in spirit and truth because that is the world that Jesus creates. It's beautiful. It's hard. It can be ugly and messy, but at the end it is very beautiful. Verse 27 says, Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, What do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? I find this very interesting. From a neuroscientific kind of like brain science perspective, it is a proven fact that we all have biases. But I believe it's our responsibility to ask God to reveal them so we can lay them down at the cross that creates unity. His disciples were afraid to ask, and sometimes I wonder if they were afraid to confront their own 
baggage. It's big stuff and it's scary, I understand. Nobody wants to feel like they have a bias. Nobody wants to feel like there's a group of people that they wouldn't love. But getting real with ourselves and acknowledging where our stereotypes are and asking Jesus to radically root them out so that we can have unity, that's hard work, but I believe it's our responsibility. It's been powerful in my life to acknowledge my context. We were raised in families. We were raised with different opinions. And yet in this family, the family of God, we're called to love and to unity. The story finishes in verse 35 with Jesus teaching his disciples to have eyes to see beyond their prejudice so they may partner in the work of God. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. I love that the promise of harvest and planter is joy. We both experience joy when we look around, open our eyes, and take a broader view of the work that God is doing in the people around us. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. Come on. That is very, very good. Jesus was making it clear that separation, pride in spiritual heritage, and loyalty to a location have no place in the life of those who follow him. They have no place in my life. And I've had to take a hard look at that. Jesus pursues us with all he has because he loves us with all he is. So, after three days of hiking in Colorado, regretting many life decisions, we were placed alone under the stars for a solo night, which is terrible. I just feel like that's a really bad idea when you're afraid of the woods. And I was quite convinced something was going to eat me, and nobody would know because I was out there by myself. But I was feeling so insignificant, so worthless, so purposeless, that if something ate me in the woods, I wasn't that mad about it. I'd felt abandoned and unseen. And I felt like the decisions that I had made up until that point made it so that the God of the universe wouldn't even look my way. But I figured, you know what? May as well give it a shot. See how it goes. So I asked God, if you are real, and I wake up, 
My life is yours. And if you're not, and I'm just talking to the, the open air and the bears, uh, I don't want to wake up. And I woke up. And I gave my life to Christ. Because what I recognized is that my worth and my value isn't something I get to determine. That image of God, the idea that Jesus paid a price to redeem me, that's value. That's powerful. And even though I don't always feel that way, and I certainly hadn't experienced it up until that point, I recognize Jesus' desire for me. He pursued me alone in the woods of Colorado, just like he pursued the Samaritan woman alone at Jacob's well. Faith is an initiative of God. His spirit finds us and invites us, and we have the opportunity to respond with belief just as the woman at the well did so many centuries ago. So today I want us to consider, who is our Samaritan? Who would we, like the disciples, be shocked to see Jesus speaking with and offering his love to? I was my own Samaritan. I was shocked and confused when Jesus offered his love to me. And maybe that's where you're at. Maybe your feelings of frustration and failure and a lack of worth are keeping you from allowing the God who's pursuing your heart a little bit of leeway. Just as that crack in the facade, the crack in the defenses of the Samaritan woman slowly opened, I'm praying that God's Spirit will do the same for us. He's chasing and pursuing all of our hearts today. May we welcome his love as the gift that it was then and it is now. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you see the individual and yet you call us to community. God, I pray that you would, through your spirit, allow us to identify bias and eradicate it, to love deeper, to love greater. And I pray that as we deal with our own feelings of insignificance, that you would remember or remind us uh, that our significance comes from you. In Jesus' name, amen.